this will probably be the longest introduction I'll ever do for a message. Um, we're doing compassion this week, and uh, strangely enough, we're also up to uh, Mark chapter 8, which is uh, the feeding of the 4,000. We've done the feeding of the 5,000 before, you might remember that, and that kind of had some military kind of revolutionary kind of components and overtones to it. This one here, feeding of the 4,000, is a pretty straightforward meeting of people's needs. And what I thought I'd try and do today, and you can be the judge as to whether I'm successful at the end of it, is uh, persuade you about the holistic nature of God's redemption, all right? And if you're going, oh, I don't even know what that means, you're in the right place, all right? So hopefully by the end you will. I want to start off by talking about the uh, concept of resilience. Everyone heard of this nice little buzzword that gets bandied around, resilience? Excellent. Let me give you a little bit of a heads up about what resilience is if you're not sure. Look, it's a process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats. Uh, it's handling significant sources of stress, such as family and relationship problems, serious health problems, workplace, financial stresses. It basically means being able to bounce back from difficult experiences. Time magazine on the uh, 1st of June this year ran an article about resilience and how to get it. And uh, we might, if we can just uh, fire the PowerPoint up, that'd be great. Um, because I want to show you a page out of Time magazine on the 1st of June that is uh, about resilience. Basically what they did is they uh, boiled down resilience to 10 main factors that you need to be resilient. Okay, Here's how they go. First one is this, develop a core set of beliefs that nothing can shake. Number two, try to find meaning in whatever stressful or traumatic thing has happened. Number three, try to maintain a positive outlook. Number four, take cues from someone who is especially resilient. Five, don't run from things that scare you, face them. Six, be quick to reach out for support when things go haywire. Seven, learn new things as often as you can. Eight, find an exercise regimen you'll stick to. Nine, don't dwell up, sorry, don't beat yourself up or dwell on the past. And ten, recognise what makes you uniquely strong and own it. Yeah. Is anyone, uh, as I was going through that list, thinking, that, uh, thinking what I was thinking at the time when I first read it, where I just thought, you know, if you follow Jesus, you're actually going to tick most of these boxes. You see that? Like the first one there, develop a core set of beliefs and nothing can shake. Well, isn't that what the whole thing with God is and the Bible is? Number two, try to find meaning whatever stressful or traumatic thing has happened. Well, you've got the whole story of the scriptures and God's promise that he's going to bring good out of everything. Three, try to maintain a positive outlook. I mean, one of the things that you've heard me say lots and lots of times here is it doesn't actually matter how dark life gets. The reality of God's existence and the nature of his character give you a sure and certain hope that it's going to be okay, all right? That helps you to be positive. Number four, uh, take cues from someone who's especially resilient. And in the church, we call that what? Discipleship, a fellowship, yeah, but discipleship. Uh, five, don't run from things that scare you, face them. Isn't that what the whole faith deal is about? God's just taking into things, you go, oh, I can't do that. And he goes, I oh, know you can't do it, but I'm going to show you how to do it when you think that you can't do it. Six, be quick to reach out for support when things go haywire. What's that? Community. Uh, seven, learn new things as often as you can. This is another faith project, isn't it? Who here has ever kind of noticed that God gets you to do things you haven't done before and you kind of get irritated by it and you just, why are you doing this? He goes, well, that's why I'm doing it because I want you to do something new and I want you to trust me with it. Find an exercise regimen you'll stick to. Is God interested in you looking after your bodies? Yes, he is. He's very interested in that. 
9, don't beat yourself up or dwell on the past. What's that called? Forgiveness. <laughs> and 10, recognise what makes you uniquely strong and own it. What makes you uniquely strong? The Holy Spirit. Excellent. Good answer. So here's my question for you. Is God interested in your resilience? Yes or no? Some of you are probably going, this is a trick. Because <laughs> this is what Peter does. He asks questions that are tricks. Well, listen, I want to suggest to you that I think the answer is yes, but probably in a different way to the way that you're interested in resilience. One of the things that I've observed about uh, a lot of the self-help kind of stuff that kicks around in our culture is this. We tend to be interested in an objective in terms of it being an objective. God's interested in it in terms of it being a byproduct. You get the difference? One of them you're gunning for it. See, if you follow Jesus just so that you can be resilient, you're kind of curving in on yourself and you're making something that I think God's wanting to bring about as a byproduct, your objective, and it kind of makes it all a bit messy. And so one of the things that tends to happen in the church is if you kind of do this where uh, you kind of realise, well, it's not right to go after resilience. I've got to go after God. What people kind of have a tendency to do in the church is go, well, let's just jettison all of that. Let's not worry about resilience. God's not that interested in it. He's interested in the spiritual in my life and not all that other stuff. You actually end up in a messy place if you start doing that. Is everyone, everyone with me so far? Let me give you what I have seen of churches. Churches tend to drift to one end or the other of this spectrum. Okay? Up this end of the spectrum is evangelism and spiritual redemption. It's like the thing that matters, like the only thing that matters is that people follow Jesus. That's what matters. All right? And people have got to come to faith and they've got to be discipled and all that sort of stuff. And I think that's important too, right? But they kind of drift up that end of the spectrum. Down the other end of the spectrum tend to be the churches that are involved in social justice and they're very interested in physical redemption. Okay? People need to be fed. The orphans need to have homes. Um, people need to have, you know, they, people need to be adopted, all that kind of stuff. All right? And I wonder for you where you are on this scale, which end do you tend to drift towards? Where do you reckon Jesus is? Yeah, he's right in the middle. Let me ask you this question. See if you can answer this. Is Jesus interested in people becoming followers of him or people having somewhere safe to live? Is Jesus interested in people becoming followers of him or not starving to death? Yeah. So you, get, you get the trick here? What this is called is it's called a false dichotomy. I'm asking you to split something that you shouldn't split. Okay? And a good answer to a false dichotomy is always yes. <laughs> All right? So if someone says, is Jesus interested in people becoming followers of him or not starving to death? You could say yes. <laughs> They go, well, which one? And then you say, yes, again. So let me practice another one on you. Is Jesus interested in people becoming followers of him or a world without orphans? Yes. Excellent. Good. You guys are really good. Now, here's the question, and this is what I'm wanting to argue today, is uh, why is it yes? And I want to suggest to you today that the reason why the answer is yes is because God's interested in holistic redemption and recovery. Um, of everything um, so the best place I think 
to start for this is to actually go back to the most pronounced Old Testament story of redemption and that was the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Let's go back and have a little look at that and see how Jesus plays into that. Here's the deal. You all probably know the story. Israelites are slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They cry out to God for deliverance. God has compassion on them and he kicks into gear to, um, to do something about the trouble that they're actually in. What's interesting about the redemption that God brings about with the uh, Israelites is it's not just spiritual, it's actually physical as well. What even evangelicals have done a lot of good and probably we're kind of sitting somewhere in the line with evangelicals all right but one of the things evangelicals have done with the old testament story of the exodus is this they kind of turn it into a gospel story and they say what the old testament story of the exodus really means is that people are sinners they're in slavery to it and jesus has come he's died on the cross and he set them free there's a big Look, there's essences of that kind of overlap between the two stories. But one thing I want to suggest to you today is that not, it's probably not quite as neat as what you think. All right? In the Old Testament story of the Exodus, whose sin is the most pronounced in the Old Testament story of the Exodus? The Egyptians. All right? You get that? So it's not like when people kind of try to overlay a gospel story over the top of the... Um, exodus the israelites from egypt it doesn't it's there but it doesn't quite work as well as they kind of want to make it out to be so my point is this you can't really turn the old testament story of the exodus into a spiritual type of redemption only that's my point you with me on that it's it's got more to it going on than that because what god's wanting to do is release the israelites um, in so many other ways and we'll get to that in a minute here's what god says to uh, moses Um, when he talks to Moses at the burning bush he says this then the Lord said I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey so let me go through really quickly what God's plan was in terms of liberation for the Israelites First one's this, God's plan was actually to liberate Israel politically. Israel was a very large nation and it was politically oppressed and they actually didn't have a voice in the nation in which they lived. God's plan was to liberate Israel economically. This nation was enslaved, they didn't have a land of their own, they were economically exploited by the Egyptians. All right, The Egyptians used them to make all of their stuff. God's plan was to liberate Israel socially So what you've actually got in the uh, story of the Israelites in Egypt is escalating state violence against the Israelites. Uh, Just think about the effect that that would have had socially. You've got the decree to actually kill all of the male babies. I mean, imagine if you're a a mum who was pregnant and you you literally just gave birth to a a baby boy and someone takes takes it out and cuts its throat and kills it. I mean, think about the social upheaval that would have been happening as a result of that. Um, and then you've just got the violation of just fundamental human rights that we would see in our, uh, in our day and age. And then, of course, you've got a spiritual liberation that God's wanting to bring about for the Israelites as well. Uh, constantly through the narrative, you've actually got um, Moses and Aaron saying, God wants you to let our people go so they can go and worship him. So there's a sense in which the slavery in Egypt is actually preventing spiritual worship of God 
And what God's actually doing also in the Exodus is he's working to reclaim his worshippers. God's working to lead the Israelites to knowledge, service and worship of him. Is everyone going okay so far? So you get the point here. The redemption that God was bringing about for the Israelites in Egypt wasn't just spiritual. It was a spiritual, physical... I mean, and it's got all those facets on the screen that I just explained to you. And what we actually see in Mark chapter 8 is we actually see Jesus looking a heck of a lot like Moses. And you might remember back in, I think it was Mark 6 or somewhere there where we did the feeding of the 5,000. What's happening there? Well, all the people are in the wilderness and they're hungry and they don't have enough food and someone needs to feed them. And Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of the type um, that Moses was, comes in and feeds bread to people that are hungry in the wilderness, which is kind of exactly what Moses well, it's not exactly, but it's very close to what Moses did, but just way, way better. You see, Jesus is the better prophet that Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18. And what we actually find when you get to the New Testament is that the Jews are really excited about the kingdom of God. They're really excited about this Messiah that's going to come and inaugurate this new kingdom. You know why? Let me tell you what they're excited about. They're excited about justice for the oppressed. Because that's what the prophets said. They're excited about the overthrow of the wicked. They're excited about true peace. They're excited about the abolition of war. They're excited about the abolition of the means of war and even training for war. They're excited about the end of poverty, want and need. They're excited that everyone's going to be provided with economic viability. Everyone's going to be provided with safety and fulfilling lives for families, safety for children, fulfilment for the elderly, without danger from enemies, without danger from nature. That's what they're excited about. It's way more than spiritual. Am I saying that the spiritual is not important? No, I'm not. It's just way more than the spiritual. And who shows up to actually declare the start of this age? Jesus himself. And what does he say in Luke 4? He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now, when you read that, you should be saying there spiritual and physical realities, don't you? That's what it is. That's what he's on about. And sometimes, why am I preaching about this today? I'm preaching about this today because sometimes I think we just kind of sideline the physical realities. I asked someone at a group the other night if God was interested in physical realities. And I think he is. And I think that's the beautiful thing about our God is that he's interested in a holistic thing. Right at the end of this scripture, have a look here. To proclaim, proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Anyone know what that might be referring to? Anyone got a hunch? Yeah, I think that's what it is. Anyone ever heard of the year of Jubilee? Let me tell you what the year of Jubilee was. The year of Jubilee, they think, happened either in the 49th or the 50th year in a regular pattern. In that year, all land was returned to the original owners. 
The landlord fallow for a year, which basically meant no one farmed. You had to trust in God to provide the food that you needed to live for that year. And any Israelites that had become enslaved were freed. And you know what day it was announced on? The Day of Atonement, which you could argue was the peak day in the Old Testament sacrificial system about the forgiveness of sins. So on this day of forgiveness of sins, you got this liberation of captives, the slaves, all right? You got the return of money. There's, there's um, social kind of liberation. There's economic liberation. On this day, it's the day where everything's meant to be restored again. And Jesus is coming along and he's saying the day of this kind of kingdom where everything gets restored starts now. Now, it's not complete. It's kind of the now and the not yet. But do you get, do you get what I'm saying here? He's just kind of standing out and he's going, right, this starts now. It starts now that poor people get looked after. It starts now that hungry people get fed. And he was always doing it in the Old Testament, but there's something new about his kingdom that he's bringing about at that point in time. And we need to be careful that we don't in our minds split social help from the gospel because God doesn't do that. Why doesn't God do that? Why does redemption need to be holistic? Because sin, the effects of sin is holistic. Look what happens in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 when humanity turns their back against God and disobeys him and sins. What happens? They get alienated from God. Spiritual. They get alienated from themselves. Man, that happens. They get alienated from each other. You've got a social component in there and then you've got a physical world kind of component where they get alienated from their natural world. So redemption must be holistic because the effects of sin are holistic. What happens when we split social action and spiritual realities apart? Well, I'm going to give you a few suggestions. If we do social action without evangelism, without spiritual redemption, what will happen is we'll lead people out of slavery without the restoration of their relationship with God and this will end up with them repeating the history of Israel. See, one of the things we talk about really often in this church here is that people worship, what people love is what they worship and they serve whatever they worship. So here's the thing, if you don't change someone's heart, of being a worshipper of false gods, in the end, they'll end up being a slave to those things, even if you get them out of trouble. And you can keep getting them out of trouble, but if you don't change what they're worshipping in their hearts, they're going to keep returning to slavery. And you know, that's actually what we see the whole way through the Old Testament with Israel, isn't it? God kind of got them out a whole bunch of times, and their worship at the end of the day kept going wrong, and so they ended up going back into slavery, to the point where they actually made alliances with... uh, nations around them that actually oppress them we serve whatever we give our affections to and we become slaves to it the writer of hebrews uh, remarks about the israelites when he says that uh, the nation that experienced the wonders of god's deliverance actually failed to enter the rest that god had for them and it was because of what because of their disobedience and their unbelief The reason why they kept going back into slavery was because of their spiritual redemption, which wasn't actually complete. Some of you, probably many of you go, yay and amen. That's why we shouldn't do social action without evangelism. Well, what happens if you do evangelism without social action? 
you get with a you get a really pietistic religion that becomes a nice cozy club so you get and in australia you get nice little middle class clubs you see the israelites actually had a strong appetite for worship but their lives were a denial of the moral standards of the god they claimed to worship and we haven't even gotten into the book of james all right if you know the book of james really well you know james is really quite brutal toward faith that lacks social action let me read you james 2 verse 14 to 17 what good is it brothers my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works what good is it you know the answer to this what good is it it's no good it's useless right he's going to argue with you first before he says that (laughs) but that's basically what he says can that faith save him or her if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them go in peace be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body what good is that now do you know what our version of that would be let me read it if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them i'm praying for you brother (laughs) isn't that it i'm praying for you you know let me know if you need a hand (laughs) that's kind of our version what good is it well james says it's no good it's not real faith if it doesn't engage at the social level so we're not ultimately if we do evangelism without social action folks we're not being like god because he doesn't do evangelism without social action so everyone good with that so in all of this all i'm really saying is you just want to be like god (laughs) and from the start he's been on a mission that's holistic that's about everything and you just want to get on it with him all right because that's when it's going to be most effective we're really good at splitting up splitting things up that ought not be split up you ever heard this saying someone said this to me a while ago they said balance is to go to all extremes equally (laughs) and i I like that you know why i like that i like that because when someone like me stands up and talks about this kind of stuff right some of you might go see i need to be less concerned about spiritual redemption don't do that all right i'm not saying that i'm just saying you need to lift the level of the other one up okay don't just kind of go i've got to peg this one back so it matches the other one i've got to be more balanced get more balanced by going to all extremes equally all right so that's my introduction (laughs) the rest is very short don't some of you go (laughs) you gave us a warning are we going to be here till three maybe I think Jesus is a picture of a holistic redemption. Mark 8, I'm going to read verse 1 to 9 so you can read it through on the screen or in front of you if you want. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, do you know where this crowd is out of interest? This crowd is actually, uh, we know, is in the Decapolis region. Now, what's significant about that? Well, here's what's significant about it. The last feeding of the 5,000 was in a Jewish region. All right, and everyone would have ex- expected that Jesus should have come for the Jews, but everyone's kind of thinking he didn't come for the Gentiles because they're not the chosen ones. But here he is in the middle of the Gentile region, and uh, they're in trouble. And Jesus is, I think, saying he's actually come for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. He's moved deeply. 
Uh, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago about the feeding of the 5,000, how that Greek word for compassion there actually talks about being moved to one's bowels. Like that was the seat of pity and emotion that, that people had. Because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. Do you hear this? It's just like Jesus is going, these guys, these 4,000, they've been hanging out with me for three days now and they're really hungry. And I'm concerned that if I send them away, they're going to faint. Now, those who drift down the spiritual redemption end of the spectrum, what what do they think? Well, at this point, they're just going, well... Maybe we can do that, but can we just do the altar call first, you know? Where's, how many decisions have there been, you know, as he, as he preached uh, about the importance of the gospel? Has he given a good gospel talk yet? Well, maybe he has. I don't know. But what it looks like to me is he's just gone, these people need food, and he's really happy to provide food for them. And it's not, do you, see what I, do you get what I'm saying? It's not over-spiritualising it. Don't turn it into something, you know, don't turn it into some kind of metaphor you know, you know it's, people are hungry, they're going to faint if they try to go home and Jesus is really caring for them. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Interesting question, a good question. You notice here, and this happens the whole way through the Gospels pretty much, is the disciples struggle because their view of Jesus is being informed and shaped by the situation that they find themselves in. Do you see that? Whereas Jesus keeps teaching them, you look to me and your situation gets shaped by who I am, not me getting shaped by what your situation is. Whenever Jesus sees anyone cold, hungry, ill or in distress, his heart goes out to them. That's what we see in the Gospels. And the question is a good question, isn't it? Who is able in this remote region to satisfy these people with bread? Any answer? Jesus. They can. No one else can. They haven't got food. The disciples don't have food. Does anyone, uh, does that ring any bells for you, that question? Like who's going to give us enough food to feed this lot? Because Moses kind of asked the same question, didn't he? about the hundreds of thousands of Israelites that he had that needed food. Where are we going to get enough food for these people? And the answer back then was pretty much the same as this answer, wasn't it? God was going to do it. He was going to do it. So Jesus says to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. Now, you might remember when we did the feeding of the 5,000, we're probably more talking about dinner, kind of roll kind of loaves. We're not talking about 800 gram kind of bakery loaves loaves and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people and they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish you know what the uh these fish were most likely something like sardines all right so basically what you got here is probably some work dude's lunch he's got a tin of tuna and a couple of bread rolls right that's what he's got And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. What's happening here? 
the kingdom is coming and Jesus is the one who's bringing it, isn't he? And he is probably doing some teaching there, but he's not only doing teaching because he's got 4,000 people who might faint. This sounds a lot like God, doesn't it? Strangely enough, given that he is God. You go back to Deuteronomy 10, listen to this. This is what Moses writes. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Listen to this sentence. Is this not absolutely beautiful? He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him what? Food. Isn't this what Jesus is doing? This is what God's doing. This is God's whole redemptive plan for history and Jesus is inaugurating this kingdom, this coming of the kingdom that is all about the meeting of physical and spiritual needs. I want to read you a section from uh, Tim Keller's book called uh, Mercy Ministries, I think it is. He has this section in there about a guy called Thomas Chalmers from Scotland. The Reformed Protestant Church in Scotland was established by John Knox in the 16th century. The country was divided into parishes. Now, just note that. It wasn't like the people in the church were divided into parishes, like the whole the country was, right? So the church at this point in time, this is a bit of a bit of a precursor for you the church is actually interested in the oversight of the whole of the country not just the people who go to church okay each church consisted of two classes of officers elders and deacons the deacons were given the responsibility to care for the poor in each parish out of the funds of the congregation the responsibility of the parish minister included both the temporal and spiritual welfare listen to this of all parish inhabitants now, what would that look like in Highfields? Well, you know what it might look like in Highfields if we did that, is that the pastors of all the churches in Highfields are responsible for the welfare of the whole of Highfields. Not just those that go to church, not just those that decide to follow Jesus, the whole lot of them. He supervised the deacons in the collection and distribution of the parish poor relief fund. However, both the parochial system and the office of deacon began to vanish by the 18th century. Under Reverend Thomas Chalmers, however, this system was restored in the church of St. John's, Glasgow, during the early 1800s. Listen to this. His parish included 11,513 residents, of which 2,633 were members of his church. I get that. Just stop there. That pastor's responsibility, and this is all a bit fearful for me to be preaching this on a Sunday morning, but that pastor's job is to look after 11,500 people and only 2,500 of them go to church. Now, when, when you hear this, you know, I feel the pressure. <laughs> but do you know what? There's a rightness. It just feels right, doesn't it? When you hear that. Isn't that kind of what the church is meant to be doing? So... You know, we can spend a lot of time, and I think we need to spend a lot of time looking after our own, but isn't, isn't it like God wants us to bring more of a holistic kind of feel to the place? Listen to this, the next sentence, 4,000 of the residents were completely unchurched. They didn't go to church, they probably had never been to church, but it was his job to pastor them, and the church's job to look after them too. The entire area was divided into quarters, each with a deacon over it. Each deacon's job was to keep the session, the elders informed about the economic conditions in his quarter. We've got to start calling ourselves that in the session. It sounds pretty fancy, doesn't it? 
Um, he was to help the unemployed get work and help uneducated children get schooling. Did you hear that? It's like, you know, people down this end of the spectrum, he's, yeah, no, man, you're not out there to help people get educated. You're out there to get people saved. He's going, no, well, you're out there to do it all. And some people go, no, well, your priority is spiritual redemption. I just go, no, let's not even have priorities. Let's just do all of it. That's the thing here, all right? And our tendency is like, let's have, what's, what's a priority? What's most important? And I just go, all of it. Just go, yeah, but one of them's got it. No, just all of it. Just do it all. When a family was found in need, he was to seek out resources within the neighbourhood. If there were no other options, a family was admitted to the poor roll. The statistics from one year show 97 families on the relief rolls of the church from an approximate total of 3,500 families in the parish. Listen to this. The deacons did not work alone. Each quarter was cared for by a ministry team consisting of an elder, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher and often a lay evangelist. Do you hear that? They're just gunning for all of it, right? The gospel was shared and children enrolled in church school as diaconal aid was offered. Chalmers called this program his moral machinery. Listen to this. At one moment, his ministry was criticised as being in competition with a government welfare system. Any amens out there for that? Amen. Well, that's how it should be, shouldn't it? Chalmers readily agreed. <laughs> he went on to say that the church could do what the government could not. He saw that it could deal with the moral and spiritual roots of poverty. God, make us a church like that. Anyone with me on that? Yeah. 